Welcome to another week of Trashy trashy Divorces. This week, we got some funny girls. We do. We do. Both redheads. Both redheads. Our song, uh, Funny Girl, from the Funny Girl musical, episode title. Two funny girls a few decades apart in our lineup today. Funny Girl is a 1963 musical produced by Ray Stark, who has a little tie-in with Dominic Dunn, starring a young Barbara Streisand, nominated for eight Tony Awards, but in that year up against Hello, Dolly, and didn't take home a one. Mm. But as Funny Girl goes, no offense, Babs, I encourage y'all, if you have not listened, go check out Diana Ross and the Supremes. And their album of Funny Girl doing songs. I've got some links on the site for you. Amazeballs. Who was your prototypical funny girl for, oh, the, for this week? My funny girl. I've been waiting to cover her for so long. And we're doing it on her birthday week. Lucille Ball and her trashy divorce from Desi Arnaz. Mm. Such a good story. Oh, I will always love Lucy. There's just no way. We we all do. Who'd, who'd you cover this week, Stacey? I have the more contemporary Kathy Griffin, who I believe is effectively one of those 70s toys, the the weebles that wobble, but they don't fall down. Never. Like she is unstoppable. And, and I'm here for it. 100%. Yeah. Good stories. Before we get to our stories, let's do a little Patreon catch up. Let's definitely do that. We have some names for the magic mirror, but before we do that, let's... Talk about what happened on Patreon this week. Sure. You had your, our $10 people this week got two bonus divorces just in the way the calendar worked out. You had your bonus divorce on the, <laughs> on the, on the fake wedding idiots of the deserts. That's a hell of a story. It has a few different titles. Uh, it's, but it, it's an interesting one. <laughs> fake weddings are awesome. Mm. The bonus divorce for me this month, starting August, was... Roxanne and Peter Pulitzer. Right. Which actually had just the Hello Karma twist at the end that was beautifully fitting. Oh, and trashy tidbits this week also. Oh, y'all, we covered the current scandal problems in the Hertford family of Jolly Old England, the descendants of Jane Seymour, uh, the Earl of Hertford currently having some problems, as well as told the story of. The Earl of Hertford, Edward Seymour, and his son, Eddie Seymour Jr., this week, too, in Trashy Tidbits. So. She, she once again, Alicia once again tried to explain to me how these titles work. We and, may, maybe got it. And I once again, it's like I can't even absorb that information. <laughs> we can go over it, it again. So who's in our magic mirror this week? Say sure. who you got. I have with a big, big thank you to Huge thank all you. of our patrons. Y'all are awesome. Um, I have Lacey, Karen S, Corey K, Kendra W, Jennifer C, Kristen N, Carol M, Kimber V, Nicole H, Carrie B, Kat S, Haley K, D-A-R, or Dar, Dar mm-hmm. Olivia, Tamara, Maeve, Rebecca B, Nikki and Nick, Carrie, Amanda M, Rudy H, Kathleen R, Kimberly W, Jessica S, Victoria P, and Kimberly B. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all are awesome. I hope that you are enjoying all your fun Patreon content. we got some good stuff coming up this week as well. We're mm-hmm. returning Fun With Done August 6th. 
Also, can I just say it is so much fun to see people post pictures of their cards and totes and all that stuff that because we, we ship oh, yeah, stuff Patreon out this week. stickers and tote bags that out this week. is just one of the coolest things that happens is people are like showing off their trashy divorces swag on social media. And I'm like, oh, my God. We were doing this. How you did this even this. happen? This it's is amazing. amazing. So if you like what we're doing here, please consider coming on over and joining Team Trash Candy over at Patreon. You can get on board for as little as two bucks a month. But with five or ten, you get all it. it's bonus content for days. We have a schedule for the rest of the year and woo, it's lit. Woo. All right. You ready to get our... Uh, Show on the road. I am ready for some funny girls. There's no business like show business. Let's go, go, go. They're the greatest stars. Let's do this. All right, Alicia. Yo, Stacy. Your, I'm so excited to hear your story. This is one of my very favorite people of all time. One of my very favorite people Mm -hmm. of all time. No one is raining on my parade today. It's August and my birthday month. In fact, my birthday week. Happy birthday. Thanks. So I'm taking the time to talk about the trashy divorce of one of my very favorite Leo ladies. One day off for my birthday, Lucille Ball. I love her. I will never not love her. I have loved her since I was old enough to understand that what she love was... was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I just she. She's perfect. She's perfect. This is the story of the romance and fallout of Lezzie, Lucy, and Desi. They would actually ship as Lezzie these days. They really would. That's a shame. Uh, honestly, Lucy and Desi were called TV's first interracial couple. Which makes sense. I, He's Cuban. She's. This story is so good. A 20 year marriage when it was all said and done, and America was heartbroken. Hmm. But Lucy wasn't. And there's some great redemption at the end of the story, too, because you know I like. Sprinkles on the cupcakes. Yeah. Okay, you ready? Sure. Lucy, born August 6, 1911 in New York. But the family moves around a lot. Her dad is a lineman for Bell Telephone Company. Sadly, her dad dies when she's three of typhoid fever. Hmm. Mom is also at the time pregnant with baby number two, her brother Fred. So the family moves back to New York. Mom moves back in with her mom and dad. So it's the five of them. They live in this town called Celeron. Like like the processor? C-E-L-O-R-O-N, Celeron. Close. New York. Okay. It's just a few miles from one of the best amusement park areas in the U.S. at that time. So they've got boardwalks and a ramp to the lake and vaudeville shows and a bandstand and ballrooms and a roller coaster. Like, it's a big deal. What a different, what a different era that was. Yeah. That sounds so cool. Yeah. Like, it's mid 19 teens yeah like when the park life like when i was a kid in north alabama like the state fair would come to town for a week every summer or something yeah and that's the only comparable thing but to have like a like an ongoing like just that's the the thing yeah so you (laughs) You can imagine what lucy grows up around Mm -hmm. this larger than life amusement thing her mom remarries when lucy's seven and mom takes off with the new hubby and they leave to go look for work leaving Lucy and her brother with the grandparents, who are kind of puritanical Swedes. Hmm. They banish mirrors from the home, except for one mirror in the bathroom. And one day they come in and see Lucy admiring herself in front of that mirror and chastise her. Yeah. This time period is going to instill some lasting damage in our little Lucy. (laughs) Uh, Imago, y'all, it's a thing. 
So Leo's little ones and big ones are performers. And Lucy's dad is also a Shriner. And they are having a show because of the amusement thing. And they need chorus girls. And granddad encourages Lucy to try out and she gets the part. And the love affair with performing was born. This gives her some praise and recognition and some other things that she's probably not getting in her home environment. And from this time on, she knows that she is the greatest star by far, and nobody knows it, but they will. They're, wow, this is... Oh, I'm the, lacing in lyrics from Funny Girl all the way through this. Oh, sure, but it's also very... I mean, my story will have many of these features. It's it's, no, really, it's amazing. The people who actually make it in showbiz, like two from amazing redheads Early on, this week. they're just driven... That's it. It's going to take her a while to get to stardom, though, because at the tender age of 14, Lucy is dating a 21-year-old hoodlum in the neighborhood. Hmm. Bad boys. Bad boys. What you going to do? Every girl has one. No one in her family approves of this matchup. And as little as her family has, they saved to send her to drama school in New York City in 1926, mostly just to get her away from... Bad boy. Bad boy. Lucy, at the time in 1926, his classmates with Betty Davis. Jesus. Right? Lucy says the only thing she learns at drama school is how to be frightened. Her instructors think that she is talentless, but she is determined to make it. And in 1928, she begins working for Hattie Carnegie as an in-house model. Like, Lucy's just funny and slapstick, but... She starts out as a model. Like, you forget how actually good-looking she is because funny, sort of, but girl's a looker. So she's doing great until rheumatoid arthritis hits, and she's not able to work for two years. Yikes. So she takes a two-year hiatus away from New York. She does return back in 1932. So at the time, she's 21-22. There's still time for every possibility. She gets a gig as the Chesterfield Cigarette Girl and some chorus work on Broadway. She starts to land some minor roles in films and moves to Hollywood in 1933. She's chosen by Samuel Goldwyn to be one of the 16 Goldwyn girls to co-star in the picture Roman Scandals. In Hollywood, she is coached by Ginger Rogers' mother Layla on the RKO lot in dancing. Hold on. Lucy and Ginger are distant cousins on the maternal side. That isn't this crazy? Yes. So during her run at RKO, Lucy gains a reputation for doing physical comedy and stunts that other actresses avoided. So it keeps her steadily employed. Right. And honestly, having grown up with a vaudeville theater close by or or some sort of vaudeville performance on, on the regular, it doesn't surprise me that she that that's something she excelled at. Also, I think a lot of actresses would have avoided that because they can seem unfeminine. Sure. Here's a great quote that I didn't actually, I added in a few Lucy quotes, but there was a good one where she says, I'm not funny, I'm just brave. Which is, yeah. you know, I may not be funny, but I'm brave enough to go out and do things that she's other both. people aren't. She is. Let's be honest. She is both. Okay. So she's in a lot of films because she's she is brave, but not like the stardom thing isn't really happening for her. She does audition for the part of Scarlet and Gone with the Wind really? in 1939. Her photo stills were funny. Can you imagine that? Um, can really glad that didn't work out for her. Yeah, for sure. Well, she might be two for twenty years. She does not get the role of Scarlet, but she does land the female lead in a little film called Too Many Girls. And the fates are about to set in or dance in, I should say, 
as one of her co-stars is a younger, handsome Cuban dude named Desi Arnaz. Huh. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Desi, born March 2nd, 1917. Desi is six years younger than Lucy, but it is kind of love at first sight. Let's talk a little bit about Desi's background. He is from a very wealthy, opulent Cuban family. His dad actually was the youngest mayor in Santiago and also serves in the Cuban House of Representatives. They own three ranches, a palatial home, and a vacation mansion. But by 1933, the Cuban Revolution is going to change all of that. Dad gets arrested. All of his property is seized. Desi's uncle intervenes and gets dad actually out of jail, but the whole family in 1934 moves it on up to Miami, getting out of harm's way and essentially starting over. And here's the thing, like Desi is by all accounts a patriotic guy and later in life says like, I am so grateful to America and I can't imagine being, you know, a Cuban kid who doesn't know a word of English to come here and make a success out of his life. Like... America, land of the free, home of the brave. Okay, Desi's talented, musically so, too. And by 1939, he is on Broadway, starring in the stage version of Too Many Girls. See what's about to happen? He lands a part in the film version, Lucy lands the lead role, and this Pisces-Leo love match is on. On! Leo and Pisces. What a spectacular combination. Both signs really desire relationships, and they may initially confuse each other because of their very different temperaments, but they both have a very strong desire for love and affection. They have the potential to be blissfully happy. Leo fire sign, Pisces water sign. So in the land of your astrology, they make steam. Steam. Now, the physical attraction between Leo and Pisces is powerful and palatable. I'm the first one to go with this. Urban legends suggest the two do not match very well. I have always believed that myself. Like, in love matches, I stay away from Pisces. It's just, it's not my thing. I was wrong. The pair can actually make a very good match. Leo's sex vibe is unmistakable. When Leo wants to mate, it becomes extremely dominant and hunts for prey with pinpoint accuracy. I don't know what that means. I can't verify that's true at all. Okay. Like the Pisces-Leo match does get a bad rep and you don't think of them as strong, but they can be until they aren't, which is usually caused by lack of trust and keeping secrets. But that doesn't really have anything to do with astrology since that's pretty much how every trashy divorce starts is... Lack of trust in keeping secrets. But Lucy is quoted, Once in his life, every man is entitled to fall madly in love with a gorgeous redhead. And friends, they do fall in love. (laughs) From the start, friends say Lucy doted on Desi, eager to make him happy. If he wanted something, she'd get it. If they sat down together and he needed more space, she'd move over. Like, her friends are really confused. Like, Lucy, this guy is nothing like your type. He's the same height as you. He, this isn't the kind of guy you date. Like, why are you just rolling over for him? Her friend and fellow actress, Ruta Lee, says, I found it surprising because she was such a strong, independent lady. But when it came to Desi, she was very old fashioned. After filming of Too Many Girls Raps, Lucy embarks on a promotional tour. Desi goes back to performing at nightclubs with his band. 
during this time apart, <laughs> Lucy gets wind because Lion has set her her eyes on him. Lucy gets wind that Desi has met up with his former lover, Betty Grable. Lucy shows up at his house that he <laughs> shares with his divorced mom, wow. berating him and calling him a Cuban son of a bitch. What? Desi, oh, my God. I know. Desi, looking for any solution to solve this argument, let's get married. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In November 1946, months after they met, the pair elopes. November 30th, 1940. Good for them. She is 28. He is 23. Wow. They are both acting. Go cougar. I, five years is nothing. <laughs> In your 20s, five years is a lot. That is probably true, but we've covered far greater age differences on our trashy Without, platform. Yeah, not the worst I've heard of, but you know. Okay, so they're both acting, and Lucy is kind of known as the queen of B-movies. She's in a lot of films, but they're not A-list films, but... Would you say that she had a life on the B-list? She had a life on the B-list. That's exactly <laughs> it. Uh, she's working on the B-list. Desi is into some action. He does end up getting drafted for the war, but he ends up with a knee injury. So he can't go fight, but instead is assigned to direct the USO program sure. at a military hospital yeah. in San Fernando Valley. Okay, so that's pretty cushy. <laughs> so so no, broad. pretty cushy with cookies and milk. Okay, Hold so on. One if of, you could run the music program here in California, that'd be great. Right. What the, This is a program he implements. <laughs> Believe it or not, returning soldiers, returning injured soldiers request cold milk more than anything else at the hospital. So Desi creates this program to bring in lady movie stars and pour out cold milk for our wounded GIs. Who knew? I'm, I, can you imagine? There's Joan Crawford pouring you a glass of cold milk. But cold milk. Cold milk. Yeah. Was. It's the little things. It must be the little things. The little things. Okay. So Desi's leading a big band orchestra and playing gigs out late. Lucy has early calls, and none of this goes very well. Lucy suffers a number of miscarriages in the first years of their marriage, wow. too. Now, here's an oft-repeated rumor that is only rumored is not true. It is legend that, oh, Lucy and Desi were divorced and remarried. We actually had this in another lineup until I did the research like, no, they didn't divorce and remarry. Lucy does file for divorce in 1944. She's had enough of his late drunk nights where he stumbles home. She's pretty sure he's cheating and she's done, but she's not because our sonny Leo will forgive her Pisces man and they withdraw the divorce and decide to stay together before it can be finalized. So they were not divorced. Right. They were almost divorced. Right. Yeah, no, people reconcile. So mid-1940s, Lucy's a little older than your usual young, fresh-faced Hollywood starlet. She's in her mid-30s. She lands a role, however, in a radio program called My Favorite Husband, and it's a hit. And CBS is like, hey, Lucy, we'd love for you to develop this for television. And Lucy sees her golden opportunity for the stars to align. I can keep my husband at home next to me, and we can have a venture together. Because they've always kind of been looking for a way to work together. Right. Well, and they met working together. That's it. Bob Weisskopf, who was one of Lucy and Desi's go-to writers back in the day, says she knew that if he went on the road with the band, he'd be catting around all the time. She wanted him at home where she felt the marriage would have a better chance of lasting, which, of course, it did. 
This is also a great Lucille quote that I love. She's quoted as saying, How I Love Lucy was born, we decided that instead of divorce lawyers profiting from our mistakes, we'd profit from them instead. (laughs) Which is brilliant. I mean, cheers to trashy divorces. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Lucy to CBS is like, sure, I'll do it. But uh, Desi's going to co-star with me. And CBS is like, "Uh, there's no fucking way that's going to happen. American audiences will never believe that a marriage between an all-American girl and a Latin man has happened. You're an interracial couple. America will never accept it. It's just too unbelievable and it'll frighten people away. Yeah. um, Good old American racism. I mean... Yeah. I don't know if CBS said that exactly, but I imagine it was pretty close. Mm -hmm. And the answer was a pretty firm, hard fuck no. Yeah. So no matter. Lucy and Desi are like, all right. We're going to show you, CBS, how bad you fucking want this, even though you don't even know you want it yet. They form their own production company, Desilu Studios, and hit the road in a vaudeville act that tours the country in like 10 cities, 12 cities, takes the country by storm. They are selling out rave reviews, and she's going to prove to CBS that their little show is going to be a hit, and I Love Lucy was born. It premieres October 15th, 1951. And is the star of the Monday night CBS lineup for seven years, coming in at 180 episodes. They also become parents to little Lucy, their first child, born July in 1951, three months before the show's premiere. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about a busy schedule. (laughs) Lucy's friends say that the actress believed having a baby would strengthen the couple's bond. It did for a little while. Biographer Bart Andrews, who authored three books on the couple, says some of Desi's womanizing was alleviated from the moment little Lucy was born. It wasn't long before 40 million viewers were turning in each week to see what the Ricardos were up to on Monday night. In 1953, when Lucy becomes pregnant with the couple's second child, Desi Jr., I Love Lucy incorporates the pregnancy into the series storyline. So, so... So we have a Lucy Jr. and a Desi Jr. That those yes. are the children they make? Okay. It's not at all confusing. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I mean. So I'm going to dispel another rumor here. Contrary to popular belief, Lucy's pregnancy was not television's first on-screen pregnancy. Really? That distinction belongs to Mary Kay from a late 1940s sitcom called Mary Kay and Johnny. So okay. Never heard of it. Dispelling all the rumors today. CBS would not allow I Love Lucy to use the word pregnant. So expecting was used instead, or the French word of estiante or something. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure with a with a Spanish speaking, like a doing it in French was funny. Yeah, having a yeah using a foreign term would work. Re- would really fit the brand. Okay. Um, also, in addition, the only good thing sponsor Philip Morris has ever done is make the request that Lucy not be seen smoking during pregnancy episodes. Wow. Good for you, Philip Morris, one time. One time. (laughs) That one time, but there you go. That episode where uh, the first of those episodes, Lucy Goes to the Hospital, which was aired on Monday, January 19th, 1953, garners a record 71.7 rating. Jeez. 71, 72% of all households Mm -hmm. with television sets at the time Mm -hmm. were tuned in. That record is only surpassed by Elvis Presley's first of three appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, right? which aired in 1956 at an 82.6% right. rating. Yep. 
It's amazing. Again, when you only had three networks, like it. Right. This you is could grab a lion's share. Yeah. This is why you know workplaces could coalesce around cultural moments and. Like this, this is all part of why we were a little less polarized back in the day, or For sure. considerably less polarized. The overall rating of the 1952 season of I Love Lucy comes in at a 67.3. It continues to be the highest average rating for any single season of a television show. I believe it. Well, here's the thing that Desi and Lucy do, which I really, I'm a fan of. Yeah. They decide that the show would maintain what Arnaz termed basic good taste. And the two of them, as well as their writers, determined to avoid ethnic jokes, as well as any humor based on physical handicaps or mental disabilities. Good. Desi recalls that the only exception consisted of making fun of Ricky Ricardo's accent, but those jokes only worked when Lucy did the mimicking. That was kind of the only time they did anything that was... Out of basic good taste, but right, but that would be within she could do it. Right, that would be within their marriage. Yeah, the that would be a spousal. I thought that was. I mean, like for that time. Yeah, you can go back and look at TV from the fifties and sixties, and it is cringeworthy. There's like I've watched so many I Love Lucy reruns and episodes, and they're just delightful. Yeah, I mean, it's (sighs) she's she's a charmer. I like and the so good. Yeah. Okay. And it wasn't it was. She did not, they did not engage in a kind of kick down kind of humor. Nope. That was never, Yeah, that wasn't their scene. Yeah. It's not our scene either. So I can appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. The success of the show comes with a price. Desi later reveals in his memoir, the pressures of running a production company coupled with the insecurities of what his daughter would later call being Mr. Ball pushed him to the drink. Here's the sad thing though. Desi's a genius when it comes to making it all work. He convinces CBS in the early days to produce the show on film. This is an unconventional move when reruns are unheard of. And CBS is like, all right, whatever, buddy. You can have them and have the right to use them, which will become the most profitable reruns in TV history. Right. I don't know if this still holds true, but I know at one point in the last like 20 years, it is estimated that that there is no moment in any day all year long where a rerun of I Love Lucy is not being aired somewhere on the planet. entirely believe that. Yeah. In 1957, Lucy and Desi do sell these back to CBS. They buy the rights back to them for a million dollars, which is about nine million in today's terms. Seems low, to be honest. It does seem low, but it gives Lucy and Desi down payment to purchase the former RKO Pictures Studios, Hmm. which they actually make a home base for Desi Lou. Right. Okay. I Love Lucy. Also, because of Desi, pioneers a number of methods still in use in TV production today. They were the first to film before a live studio audience with a number of cameras. They have distinct sets adjacent to one another. And Desi is making all of this happen. He also doesn't know about amortization. Is that the word where you expense the cost over a certain period of time? So he never did that. So he would front load the cost in the early episodes. So by the back end of the series, the season run, everything he's making is cash because there are no expenses because it's all been handled up front Hmm. in the first. Like he is a legitimate business genius that doesn't ever really get that credit 
he is smart as fuck. And this is going to come back. And this is part of the breakup. But he's making it happen. And it's breaking his spirit to do it. Mm. Because nobody respects him. Nobody's giving him the credit. Like, Lucy's the talent. But he's he's the business. The Lucy Desi Comedy Hour airs from 1957 to 1960. But 1960, the magic is done. And after 20 years of marriage, Lucy could no longer tolerate Desi's problems with alcohol, his continued problems with womanizing. According to his memoir, again, the combined pressures of managing the production company, as well as supervising its day-to-day operations, had greatly worsened as it grew much larger and he compelled to seek outlets to alleviate the stress. He was also suffering from diverticulitis, which is no fucking joke. It is no fucking joke. And stress will, boy, will stress. Add that on. Send that into a whole other level. So, gotcha. He. It is killing. It is killing him to do it. Wildly successful, but probably would have been healthier if he'd just been a band leader who was out drinking and carousing. I don't. (laughs) The divorce is complete May the 4th, 1960. Lucy admits breaking up with Desi wasn't an easy choice, even though the relationship was so on the outs. She once said her darkest moment is when I got divorced and disappointed millions of people by doing so. Because they're, this is oh yeah, this is hot news in mm-hmm. 1960. Little Lucy is nine. Uh, little Desi Jr. Lucy Jr. is nine. <laughs> Desi Jr. is seven when their parents split. Lucy Jr., much later in life, tells Closer Weekly that she witnessed her parents' arguments. They were fighting all the time. Their divorce was horrible. And then there was the alcoholism. I had preferred those things had never been there. We didn't have any abuse, but we did go through through some pretty hard stuff. And that's why my parents didn't stay together. In 2011, she tells the Television Academy it was difficult for her as a child to accept the fact that her life wouldn't be the same after a divorce. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Part of me probably totally understood why. Because we had heard the arguments, and that wasn't fun either, but it was hard. It was very hard. I didn't want my dad out of the house. He was out of the house enough. Mm-hmm. I didn't want him to go any further away. And then when my mother wanted to remarry, I mean, that was a knife in the heart. You're yeah. kidding, right? It had only been a year, not even. Oof. It was a rough period for all of us. Yeah, I'm sure. Lucy does remarry. Lucy moves on within the next year, year and a half, to remarries a stand-up comedian named Gary Morton. Just a year or so later, in November of 1961, he is 13 years her junior. He is a December 19 baby. He's a sexy Sagittarius. So two fires heating things up. They're burned alive. (laughs) Despite the tumultuous adjustment period for Lucy Jr., She insists that Morton was a really good match for her mother, who was eager to find happiness again. He made her laugh, and he didn't embarrass her in any way. He didn't drink too much. He didn't smile and giggle with the ladies. I don't know if they had a passionate marriage. I hope so. I don't really know. My mother and my father stayed good friends after the divorce. It took a few years to calm down, but they stayed friends until the bitter end, and that was good for the kids. Gary was actually a tremendous supporter of my dad. He always spoke very highly of my dad. He gave him credit when he was talking to the audience doing the warm-ups. He would always say wonderful things about Desi. He didn't have any of those hang-ups of the husband coming in he might have 
about the ex-husband. My father can't say he always felt the same way about Gary. Yeah. He would always make jokes about Gary, but they were really friends. So this is what I find super telling because I don't think it was fine until it was fine between them. Lucy was interviewed in 1966 with Gary Morton. They've been married now four plus years. They're being interviewed by Barbara Walters. Mm -hmm. And Lucy really gets into it and talks about it because she brings up Desi. You know, like Barbara's like, I don't know how to bring this up. And Lucy's like, listen, I was acting. I had kids. Desi was building up the business. And then she kind of, Lucy gets her gander up about how hard Desi worked to do it and how Hollywood never gave him any credit or respect for being brilliant and smart about getting this idea off the ground and running. They had it all. And Barbara Walters is like, and then you divorced. And Lucy says, yeah, that was his problem. In talking about her remarriage, Lucy, Gary's sitting right there. She's like, I didn't make the same mistake twice. I married a loser the first time. Everything he built, he had to tear down himself. It's a big relationship lesson, y'all. Hold on one second, because we're going to get there in the end. The union of Lucy and Gary lasted until her death in 1989 at the age of 77. But let me tell you, Lucy also makes some pretty amazing strides on her own. Here's some fun facts I did not know that just made me think you can't love her more. Wait for it. (laughs) She is the first woman to head a TV production company, Desi Lou which she formed with Arnaz. After their divorce, she bought out his share and became a very actively engaged studio head. Also during this time, Lucy teaches a 32-week comedy workshop at the Brandy Barden Institute. She's a fucking professor of comedy. She's quoted as saying, you can't teach someone comedy. Either they have it or they don't. <laughs> Her production company, Desi Lou, produces several other popular shows such as The Untouchables, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. Star Trek is the one that I'm most familiar with. <laughs> the studio eventually sold in 1967 for $17 million, about $128 million in today's terms, and merged into Paramount Pictures. Okay. Aside from her acting career, she also becomes an assistant professor at California State University, Northridge, in 1979. Teaching, acting? I don't. An assistant professor of just being awesome. Oh, probably. That's cool. Okay. Something else really I just found sweet. In 1959, Lucy becomes friend and mentor to a little young funny gal named Carol Burnett. Mm. The two women remain close friends until Ball's death in 1989. Lucy sends Carol flowers every year on her birthday. And when Carol Burnett awakes on the day of her 56th birthday in 1989, she discovers via the morning news that Lucy has died. But later that afternoon, flowers arrive at Carol's house with a note reading, happy birthday, kid. Love, Lucy. And that's why we love her. (laughs) Just one of the reasons we all love Lucy. Yeah. Okay, so what happens with Desi? Yeah. Desi remarries Edith Eyre Hirsch on March 2nd, 1963. He greatly reduces his show business activities. He does a little producing. He does some horse breeding. It sounds like he needed a break, like in a oh, for big, sure. big way. So, well, and Lucy Jr. talks about like his step, her stepmom was great. Like they were married 23 years until her death in 1985. Desi was a regular smoker for much of his life, often smoked cigarettes on the set of I Love Lucy. He smoked Cuban cigars as well, well into his 60s. 
He was diagnosed with lung cancer in 86. He died on December 2nd at the age of 69. In 1986? 1986, yes, Dude, ma'am. yeah, that's so... So, although... So, the kids lost both their parents in... 86, uh, 89, in a, in a few years, yeah. yeah. that sucks. So... Even though Lucy and Desi both married other spouses after their divorce, they remained friends. They did grow much closer in Desi's final decade. I Love Lucy was never just a title, Desi wrote in the last years of his life. A family home video shows the two of them playing together with their grandson before Desi's death. Friends insist the pair never stopped loving each other or got over their breakup. Carol Channing Lucy's good friend says they spoke so lovingly of each other, you almost forgot they weren't together anymore. Pamela Stewart, a friend of Gary Morton's, was quoted as saying, after Lucy died, Gary said to me, I guess she's happy now. She's with Desi. I didn't know I was going to cry. Damn it. Okay, here's one last thing for crying, and then we're done with the crying. The last words that Desi said to Lucy before his death in 1986. I love you too, honey. Good luck with your show. We haven't had tears in a minute. Feel better. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to happen in this one. Lucille Ball is quoted as saying, love yourself first and everything else falls into line. You really have to love yourself to get anything done in this world. So true. True story. I'm going to take some uh, podcast producing license here and uh, go ahead and do trash cans now. Oh, okay. Because I'm giving them 20 years of trash cans and the value of learning that no matter how much you love someone, you can love them so much, and it's really okay not to be with them. You can love yourself more, and in fact, you should. Because okay. that seems to me like Lucy and Desi. She still loved him till her very last breath, but just because I love you doesn't mean that I need to be with you at the detriment of my own self-sacrifice. Sure, sure. And I, I think that goes both ways for them. Like, it sounds like he also needed that's it that is the trashy divorce of lucy and desi happy birthday lucy yeah 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 let's take a break and dry our eyes i have a oh you got some scandal there i have a less tearful less less, redhead of revenge less tears more crime let's do it all right we'll be back in a minute Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. So, Stacy, we're going to fall in love with another sassy, gorgeous redhead. We are. Let's we do are. it. I'm um, so excited. So, I need to ask you though, if you are, do you remember the 1970s era children's toys called the Weebles? 
Weebles wobble, but they, they don't, don't fall. fall. They don't down. fall down. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Never. Which it turns out is kind of a life lesson. I rewatched the ad the other night and like, oh, oh, what a good lesson for kids. What a good lesson for adults. Weebles right. wobble. They don't fall down. They don't fall down. Anyway, so I have titled my story about another funny redheaded lady, Kathy Griffin, the Weeble Warrior we want. I like alliteration. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So Kathleen Mary Griffin was Catholic born- Catholic family. <laughs> very Catholic family. Um, yeah, she was uh, the youngest of five. <laughs> okay. She was born November 4th, 1960. Ah, Scorpio Scorpio. Baby. To a big Irish Catholic family in Oak Park, Illinois. So it seems like her parents... Oh, the home of Hemingway. Oh, is it? Wow. Yeah. All right. There you go. It, I, everything's it all comes connected. Back around. Okay. So it seems like her parents were pretty solid. She says they drank, but like she never saw them drunk. Like they weren't calling out of work. Like they, they were just, they were... They were an Irish Catholic family. Irish Catholic yeah. family. A lot of kids, a lot of stress, a lot of headache. Kathy Griffin is one of them. <laughs> um, but her childhood was not ideal in every respect. She, being the youngest of five children, her oldest sibling named Kenny was about 20 years older than her. And Kenny used to, when she was a child, climb into bed with her at night and like whisper sweet nothings (sighs) into her ears. She says he never molested her, but there's definitely something wrong with that guy. Oh, no. Yeah. And he also, like she one time saw him throw a girlfriend into a wall. No. So, yeah, so there was sort of always this malevolent presence in her life. Yikes. That's a horrible way to... She learned a a lot of valuable life lessons from Kenny. For instance, she doesn't drink. Kenny became badly addicted to various things. And, you know, she sort of... Saw what that looked like. She patterned a lot of her life to be the opposite of what his life had looked like. She's wobbling, but not from alcohol. Right. (laughs) Right. I respect that. Okay, so this... Like her relationship with Kenny there was one of a few sort of formative experiences that I think kind of like gave her a real focus on powerful people and the ways that they can cause suffering. Ah. Like ah. she's got, cause she's got this very, her whole performance thing is very, like she's, she takes shots at people more famous than her, right? Sure. She just kind of has this anti-authoritarian thing. And part of this was informed by the fact that her parents made her attend a Catholic elementary school where she saw, (laughs) Jesus Christ, she saw like significant cruelty directed against children in her class. She talks about one time there was like a boy who was being a little rambunctious and the nun orders him to put on his jacket and then she hangs the jacket with the boy in it in on the, uh, yeah, in the coat closet. I too went to Catholic school. Until lunchtime. I mostly had kind nuns. Well, it, you did it post-Vatican III, right? I Vatican think this, II. Vatican II? Yes. Sorry. <laughs> that was my next question. What year was she born again? So are we looking uh, at pre-Vatican II nuns? 1960. I'm not sure when Vatican yeah, II was. Um, but... Vatican II was like 66, mid-60s. So she might have had a... It's it, Nuns have been known to be cruel to probably, children. Probably took a while for some reforms to percolate down so also she was she was not part of like the pretty popular clique of girls who one day like on the school stairwells just roughed her up they were just like hitting and kicking her and there's a nun standing right there who does letting it happen no nun do better that's so she learned what power is bad like people in power cannot be trusted yeah like yeah. So that was something she really took with her in life. 
This also, though, is where she learned the power of a, a well-deployed joke to disarm nah. potential attackers, right? Like, yeah, like, this is like, like funny girls do. It's like classic story. So unsurprisingly, upon turning, becoming an adult, she left the Catholic Church. Uh, she now considers herself an atheist. Totally makes sense. Prior to this, though, ahead of high school, she successfully lobbied her parents to let her attend public school instead of the all-girls parochial school that they originally wanted her to attend. Uh, life-changing. Yeah, apparently the the thing that got them was that it was free. <laughs> oh, well. She tried all these. After four other kids, your Catholic school tuition does tend no to add up. No kidding, yeah. Like, she, I guess she tried argument after argument after argument and then was like you won't have to spend any money on it and they were like you know that but seems like a good idea this it was a huge school it had a, an amazing theater program when she was a freshman there were a couple of seniors who were notable including mary elizabeth Mastrantonio. no wow gra- graduated from high school and went straight to broadway that's it yeah uh, and then dan castellanata who is the voice of homer simpson really was also a senior her huh. freshman year yeah Okay, so here's a little passage from her um, from her autobiography, Official Book Club Selection, a memoir according to Kathy Griffin. This, this is how I title stuff too, so like I totally dig all of this. Uh, this is how she describes herself from high school. The numbers game is intense at a school that big. So when there was only one picture of me in the freshman yearbook, I was determined to get my picture in the sophomore yearbook so many times that they would have to add another line for me in the index. Pathetic. I know. It's really no different than how I am with Us Weekly today. (laughs) I guarantee you I went to maybe one meeting of student council, but I was there on picture day. I became the only person who couldn't read music to get into city chorus. Oh my God. I joined everything I could. I also told myself that when I graduated, I was going to speak at the commencement service no matter what. And sure enough, I bullshitted my way into reading some ridiculous poem. Oh my God. That was my big thing, getting my name out there, a credo I still live by today. You may not like me or embrace me but i'll bet you've heard of me that is amazing and the most self-aware right like yeah that that is kathy griffin that is (laughs) take me or leave me you sure as hell know who i am yep that's amazing so this is the teenager that her parents were dealing with every single day Uh, she dreamed of show business, and this had just she had just had this from an early age, and it it would not be quenched. And significantly, the older brother Kenny the Creep, he had already gone to Hollywood, and was having some success there as an actor and musician. So when Kathy turns eighteen, she is the youngest, and she convinces her parents to move to Los Angeles with her to oh see God. if she couldn't get her name out there so hard that she'd finally end up famous. <laughs> Wow. So, like, this struck me as really weird. Like, this is not something... My parents would not have just been like, oh, yeah, let's, you know... Pack it on up. Older brother has moved on. Let's just move where you're going. Not that I would have found that very desirable. maybe her parents, like, getting a little bit older, wanted to retire Well, that's the thing. Yeah. We can hang out in California. Right, like, they'd had five... So, she was a late in life... So, yeah, they probably were nearing retirement age. And their oldest was out there. So their youngest, their oldest, like, yeah. So it was that in 1978, Kathy Griffin arrived in L.A. and devoted herself to the study of acting. She attended the Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute and began attending Groundlings Improv Performances. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Through through which she met Groundling member Phil Hartman. Ah. 
this led to her taking classes with the group, and eventually she was invited to join like the main company, oh, wow. I guess. Okay. So this, in turn, I mean, it's the normal career thing. Like one thing leads to the next. This led to her getting into stand-up. She had a long relationship with the L.A. alternative comedy group Uncabaret, and she ran a stand-up night with Janine Garofalo. <laughs> oh my God. And this turned into bit parts on TV and film. In 96, she gets her big break starring with Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields. Suddenly Susan. Suddenly Susan. There you go. Sitcom that ran for several seasons. And she was the slightly hostile, sort of acerbic restaurant critic at the San Francisco Magazine where... They all worked. Workplace comedy. So again, you know, like her star, modest though it be, her star is on the rise. And so this leads to comedy specials. And I think her Wikipedia page sums up her comedy style pretty well. It says, she honed a comedy and television career that poked fun at her relatively modest place in the Hollywood hierarchy in a self-deprecating manner. <laughs> Maybe quite understated, in fact. I My life on the D-list. You know what? Mm-hmm. Embrace it. That's it- exactly, exactly. Well, embrace it and make a joke out of it. I mean, you're yeah. doing the same thing as you did in elementary school. I'm going to go ahead and set up my own joke. It's true. I mean, she has had a, like, her career has been weirdly controversial because she does make fun of celebrities in her act so much that, like, the Ellen show won't book her because... Really? Because it offends other potential guests. Like, oh. she comes on and she talks smack about whatever. She's making jokes. I mean, like, I guess one time she... She had dated Jack Black recently, or I don't know, at the time. She had dated okay. Jack Black at some point. Okay. And she apparently has this policy that if she knows, she's not going to roast somebody in front of them, right? Right. But she didn't know that Jack Black was in the room that night. Oh, no. And she started riffing on their relationships and its many flaws. Oh, and apparently no. Jack Black didn't speak to her for years after that. Maybe never has again. <laughs> he was pissed. So it's not... It's not a purely inoffensive style of comedy. But here's here's my here's my branch mm-hmm. that I'm gonna throw in the arena here. Sure. Would people even blink if she was a man? How many men comedians do that all like that is their career? Yeah. That is their career all goddamn Bill, day. Bill Mark and comes to mind. Nobody ruffles a goddamn feather. It's a good point. I, That's a good point. Something to think about. Yeah, I mean Bill Maher takes shots at people constantly. constantly. I can't, I can't. Woman would, if she was a man, would anybody blink an eye? Yeah. It's a, I, it's a, that's a great question. See misogyny. Fight misogyny. <laughs> Trashy divorces for the win. All right. So somewhere around this time, late 90s, whatever, she... Um, I, I wasn't really able to find specifics about when, when and how they met, which may not... She may never really have talked too much about that. I don't know. But she meets this IT guy named oh, okay. Matt Moline. Matt is six foot four. He is a decade younger than she is. And until 2000, he's literally working as a computer systems administrator. And like, I grew up in... He's Delbert. Yeah, I grew up in Nerd Haven. Like, I assisted men. Like, I... I, Respect. As a a teenager, yeah, I knew plenty of like 25-year-old assisted (laughs) men. Like, I have such a clear picture. This probably was amazing so she doesn't seem like she's that interested in like socializing with other celebrities partly because they don't like her because she takes shots at them all the time and partly just that's not her thing so probably meeting this dude who spends his days in a cave with servers was Mm, pretty normal yeah Yeah. totally upper alley okay so they marry in february of 2001 scorpios are always very internal um that's interesting you know exactly what they think but they do their feeling alone that's that's a Scorpio. Okay. Yeah. 
Interesting. Okay, so they marry in February 01. And um, by this point, he's got he's an executive role at some some technology company. Uh, then he opens his own consultancy, Moline Systems, quote, aimed at solving the IT needs of small businesses. <clears throat> this sort of thing, having come out of tech, drives me fucking crazy. Okay. So he featured prominently in the first season of Kathy's Bravo reality special, My Life on the D-List. Right. So I feel like I've known about Kathy Griffin since I was a teenager. But the D-List thing, that's her brand. Oh, right? for sure. Like that's... Like when I think Kathy Griffin, I think, oh, right, D-list. That's that's her thing. So the show was a pretty big deal for her. Uh, magazine articles from the years that they were married paint them as a loving, supportive couple. The just living, you know, a Hollywood life, right? <laughs> Maybe not the Hollywood life, but but one of them, a D-list Hollywood, a life. D-list Hollywood life. Matt attends her stand-up shows. His sister is usually with him. Just a cool... Very regular. Yeah, just a cool, supportive couple. The couple had two dogs, and when they would finally go to bed at night, there there was this enormous television that would rise up out of a wooden cabinet at the foot of the bed. Nice. That would, And she would just... They would sit up all night and watch reality TV shows together until the wee, 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 wee hours. It sounds cozy. It really does sound cozy, except it's it's possible... But the story is on trashy divorces, so I have a feeling it, mm-hmm. the yeah, cozy so- is about to... It's possible that that Matt was nodding off a little earlier than Kathy. And so in May of 06, they divorce. And in July, Kathy goes on CNN's Larry King Live and said this. My ex-husband, without my knowledge, was sneaking into my wallet when I was asleep in the mornings and taking my ATM cards no. of my own private accounts no. and withdrawing money. Nobody. That money totaled $72,000 over about a year and a half. Sharing is caring. Stealing is a felony. Fuck yeah. Stealing oh $72,000 no. in 18 months. Fuck. No. That is systematic. Every day you're stealing from me. So she explained, yeah, what the it's, fuck? yeah. Um, so she says that she confronted him about it and he, you know, admitted and apologized and they tried couples counseling, but like, how do you come back you, from, you no, don't, you that don't, is a like, level of trust. Like you've, yeah. you didn't just run out of money and use my ATM card one Saturday when you were out with the guys and then, and then you later did it every day for a year and a half. Yeah. And then no. later you're like, sweetie, by the way. I don't know where this $100,000 is. Right. No, No, but I mean, like, it's a one-time thing where you're then like, by the way, sweetie, earlier I borrowed your card because the the guys came over. I'll hit you back. Yeah, Yeah. because we wanted pizza and I just, whatever. Whatever. 72,000. That's a lot of fucking pizza. In a truly bizarre bit of serious mansplaining, Larry fucking King, himself of eight wives, implied that maybe Kathy was being a little bit harsh on the robber in her bed. Oh my God. He explained to her that in show business, $72,000 is not that much money at all. I mean, what's the big deal about routine and intentional theft, crazy lady? Uh, Larry King, I'm coming after you, man. Yeah, he's on the list. He's so Oh, on my the God. List. Alicia Unleashed. Oh, okay, sorry. That When I read that, I... What was Kathy Griffin's reaction to that? Just that the trust was... What are, How do what? I explain to you that this is a 
really good salary for two middle class, like middle income workers in this. Like 72, that's a lot of fucking money. That's like 30 grand over the median Larry income King. in the United States. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. More trashy bits. Like um, Kathy had um, had a wedding band tattoo. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So she had to have that lasered off. Sure. Um, Smart. And for the record, Matt Moline, he gave the Larry King show a statement. He did not respond to her allegations, but he did say that he was really sorry that she was saying things like this about him. So oh, I bet you're really sorry. It was it was a denial-ish without being a denial. Wow. But listen, Kathy Griffin is a weeble. She may wobble. But she doesn't she fall does down. She does not fall down. So she spends five-ish years with a hardcore computer geek who burns her, right? Right. So who did she have a revenge fling with, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Who? <laughs> Who's the, Steve, who's the king of the tech gods? Steve Wozniak, no. the co-founder of Apple Computers. <sighs> nice. A truly accomplished, eccentric person and absolutely a king of the nerds. Mm-hmm. And that's how that feels. King of the nerds. That's a pretty good revenge <laughs> oh date. Oh my God. Well, and they they were together for a year or two. Apparently wasn't true love. You know, it ended. Uh, more recently, she was in a six-year-long relationship with a marketing guy named Randy Bick. But that broke up in 2018 while she was working through some really hard stuff after that really inappropriate May 30th, 2017 photo shoot with a fake Trump head doused yeah. in ketchup. So that incident very nearly cost her her career. She was fired from her long-running gig as co-host of CNN's New Year's Eve show with Anderson Cooper. And that friendship also totally died in the dust-up because Cooper put out a really mm. harsh statement that he didn't give her any warning. She also had commercial sponsors. This is hilarious to me. So her sponsor, Squatty Potty. Oh. <laughs> hey, when you need them, you need them. They were gone within a day. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. May 30th is my birthday. I didn't realize this had happened on my birthday two years ago, but there you go. The news comes at us so fast these days. Mm. She received thousands of death threats. Yikes. Uh, and these... Fun letter writers to her. They cheered the recent death of her sister from cancer. Oh, no. That's... And they complained only that it hadn't been Kathy herself who died. She was put on the Interpol watch list. Oh, my God. And she was put on the United States no-fly list. Oh, Jesus. The Secret Service and the FBI were both investigating her. And there was apparently serious consideration of charging her with conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States. Oh, my God. Obviously. Can we charge him with conspiracy to assassinate, like, actual Americans? Yeah. Actual people from the world? So, obviously... The double standard is mm-hmm. so strong. Um, obviously, cooler heads prevailed. See what I did there? <laughs> and anyway, it's not like it's Kathy Griffin separating babies from their mothers at the border and sending both into squalid camps. And it's not like it's Kathy Griffin backing abortion restrictions so draconian that they'll put women in prison for miscarriages. It's not like it's Kathy Griffin who's been accused of everything from inappropriate kissing to loathsome pawing to rape by nearly 20 women. It's not like there's decades-old tape of Kathy Griffin admitting that she behaves that way. It's not like it's Kathy Griffin trying to make it legal for doctors to deny treatment to queer and trans people. It's not like Kathy Griffin is billing millions of dollars to taxpayers to weekend at golf resorts she owns. It's not like it's Kathy Griffin going on extended racist tirades in public. It's not like it's Kathy Griffin rolling back environmental rules so we can all cook a few years earlier. That's all stuff the guy pretending his feelings were hurt by that picture is doing. 
Here's a paragraph from a New York Times op-ed from July 31st by Jennifer Finney Boylan that lays out the real success that is perhaps improbably Kathy Griffin. Miss Griffin, one of the most successful comedians in the country, was recognized by Guinness World Records for, quote, most stand-up comedy specials, unquote. Oh, wow. She has won two Emmy Awards. All six of her comedy albums were nominated for Grammys. Her breakout recording, For Your Consideration, made her the first comedian to debut at the top of the Billboard Top Comedy Albums chart. She estimates she's earned over $75 million in the course of her career. Wow. Mm-hmm. She has been unlucky in love. But she decided not to back down when it came to that career. After a few months of being shit upon by friends and foes alike, Kathy Griffin was done apologizing. In August of 2017, she launched a global comedy tour called Laugh Your Head Off. See what she did there? (laughs) Beautiful. That took her to, you know, all around, like Singapore, Australia, Germany, Sweden, the UK, whatever, um, all over the place. But because she was on that Interpol watch list, uh, every airport that she traveled through, she was detained in for up to six hours at a time. That's a book right there. (laughs) It's a movie. Uh, It worked out. The last leg of the tour was in North America with stops at Carnegie Hall, which sold out like that. Like, so they added a date at Radio City Music Hall. Oh, wow. Really successful tour. And in true Weeble Warrior fashion, she wobbled a bit, but then she got right back into the fight. She has just released a documentary of her experience of the last couple of years called A Hell of a Story that's debuted in select theaters for a one-night appearance, and it lands as a DVD and presumably a streaming option on September 3rd. Fantastic! So, Kathy Griffin is not done with us yet. She's still weebling. <laughs> she will. She will weeble wobble. She will sometimes wobble, but you can't knock her down. That was I a mean, great she's story. she's a really remarkable figure uh, in her own weird self-deprecating way with a pretty trashy divorce. Yeah. How many trash cans would you go for that? Um 72,000 embezzled trash cans. I fuck that guy. But not but not like Nice one, like D-list trash cans, like <laughs> like, like used seventy two thousand embezzled dirty, 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 trash dirty cans. trash cans with no trust left, no trust at all. That's a good story. Thanks. That's that's our funny girls episode. I guess that was awesome. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I love this. This was a this was a good week. Yeah. Happy happy birthdays to mm-hmm. all my Leo friends out there. Mm-hmm. Again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Y'all are the best. More next week. In the meantime, keep it trashy. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly 
slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.